Well, hello, everyone. And I want to give a, a real, real warm shout out to those who are joining us today online. We're so glad you're with us. And for our Saratoga congregation, woo, we're so glad that you are connected today and worshiping God there at that location in Saratoga. To our Half Moon congregation and to our Latham congregation, one church meeting at multiple places. We're so glad that you're a part of what God is doing. Well, as you may know, we're in a series called Big Questions About Life, and we're looking at some of those questions that people often ask when they're on a journey of faith. But these are not just questions that people who are doubting of faith ask. They're questions we all need to address from time to time, and finding solid answers to these questions really helps I've, I've discovered it helps stoke our own faith and build our level of confidence about what we believe and why we believe it. Well, today, we're going to talk about, is the Bible reliable? I think that's a question that millions of people are wondering about and, and asking, because I think you'll agree, as a Bible-oriented people, people who study the Bible and look into it every single week, many of you read the Bible every day, we're asking people to put a lot of trust in the Scriptures. But the question is, are they reliable? So let's unpack that today and uh, go on a journey of learning. And so wherever you are in your own journey, your own uh, process of faith and believing, I believe that today hopefully, by God's grace, will be helpful. I want to ask it in a number of questions. First of all, what's so remarkable about the Bible? Well, I believe if you explore that and research it, you'll find that the Bible is truly a remarkable book. Now, technically, it's not a book. I hope you all know that technically it's 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, they're all different, but they are bound together usually in one unit. So we call it a book, the book, the Bible, all right? It was written by more than 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years, and it was written in three different languages. The Old Testament primarily was written in Hebrew, but there's portions of the Old, which is also in Aramaic, all right? The New Testament was written almost exclusively, with the exception of a few words that are another language, exclusively in the language called Greek, particularly Koine Greek, which means the common Greek, not, not the academic or, or sort of high society Greek of the day, but just the common language of the people. By the way, that shows God's love right there that the New Testament was written down in a common language that people understood. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa. And the writers of the Bible from all different backgrounds, there are kings writing, diplomats, but there's also very common people, poor people, like Amos, for instance, who was a dresser of fig trees, which is really one of the most kind of dirty jobs that you could have in his culture. Now, the Bible contains lots of different kinds of literature. 
That's something you'll discover if you begin to read it a little bit. It's not all the same, in other words. It contains poetry, but it also contains history. It has prophecy in it. It has letters to individuals, but also letters that were written to entire churches. It has deep theological doctrine, and it has practical, ethical instruction. It has proverbs and parables, and it has this weird, very unusual literature called apocalyptic literature, which was really used within the Jewish culture during times of persecution. The book of Revelation, for instance, is apocalyptic in nature. It was written so that only the insiders would truly understand what it was saying. You kind of had to know the code language to get in on it. The Bible is just remarkable in that way. It has stories of war, and it has stories of love. It has political intrigue, and it has deception. It has murders, assassinations, suicide. It has stories of faith and loss of faith. It has stories of hope and hopelessness. It has stories of adultery and broken promises. It tells stories of broken dreams and of magnificent dreams fulfilled. If you want a provocative book to read, the Bible is your book. I mean, it is one remarkable book. It tells us where we came from. It tells us where we're going. It allows us to look at eternity past, and then it allows us to peer through the telescope of time into eternity future. I love all those things about the Bible, and all of them are true. But in spite of all that, in addition to all that, there's one thing I love even more about it. The Bible tells of God's love for us. It has this, this thing in it. It has this story in it that we call the gospel. It's the best news in the world that anybody could ever hear. It tells a story about fallen humanity, distance from God by our sins, separated from God, unable to have a relationship with God on our own. And, and here's the kicker. God remedied that. That's what the gospel's all about. He sent his one and only son into the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died on the cross so that my sins and yours could be forgiven. I love that part of the Bible. To me, that's the best part of all. You might be curious to know that this amazing book, and we've just skimmed the surface of how remarkable it is, it was the first book, mind you, to be printed on Gutenberg's printing press in the 15th century. It's been published in more languages. It's been reprinted more than any book in history by far. More Bibles, get this now, more Bibles are sold every year in this world than the next five most popular books combined. That's how amazing the Bible is. As you might imagine, when you've got a book that's that remarkable, 
there's some people who are going to want to discredit it. But interesting, everyone who's tried had ended, has ended up with egg on their face. Thomas Paine, in his booklet called The Age of Reason, developed what he thought was an irrefutable attack, attack against Christianity. He boasted that he would destroy the Bible forever, even predicting that within a few years, the Bible would be utterly forgotten. Well, Thomas Paine is gone. His book is all but forgotten, except for a few students of history. But the Bible is still here in great supply. Voltaire was a clever writer. I encourage you to read his book, Candide. It's one of the most fun little reads you'll ever find. Voltaire was an unbeliever, however. He was a huge critic of Christianity. <clears throat> and he said that 100 years from now, you will no more hear about the Bible. Wow, that's quite an audacious claim. Voltaire to make. And 50 years after he made that, one of Voltaire's books would sell for about eight cents a copy, and an old manuscript of the Bible was bought by the British from the Russians for $250,000, just to show you the contrast of how they were valued. In fact, in one of the most interesting twists of history, I believe, the house where Voltaire lived became a printing press for Bibles. It housed a printing press that printed Bibles. Isn't that an ironic twist? Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. I could go on and on about how remarkable the Bible is. I love it. I live in it every day. I read it every day. I commit it to memory. I love the Bible, in case you don't know. But that's not even my topic today. I'm not here today to ask, is the Bible a remarkable, amazing book? To me, that's undeniable. I'm here to ask, is it reliable? Can you trust it? Is it believable? And so that for the remainder of our time, I want to give our attention to that. One of the questions I want to ask is, how do I know that what we have, and many of you are holding a Bible right now, some of you have a device from which you read Scripture, how do I know that what we have now in our copies of the Bible is the same as the original? That's the question of integrity, and scholars apply that to all ancient books, What's the integrity, they ask, of this particular book? Now, there are three questions that usually are critical to determining the integrity of any ancient document. One is how many documented ancient manuscripts still survive. A second question is what's the amount of time? Watch this now. From when the author or authors originally wrote that document, what's the amount of time between that and the earliest, oldest manuscripts we have of that document. And another question is, how faithful and consistent 
has the transmission of the text been? In other words, as you take all those old copies, however many there are, and you compare them with each other, remember, they were all laboriously copied by hand, how many textual variants are in there? That's another key factor in trying to determine the integrity of any ancient work. Well, the Bible, you may be glad to know, comes out with high marks in all of these areas. Just to illustrate it, let's compare Scripture with some other examples of famous ancient literature. Let's take Plato's writings, for instance. Now, you may know that the three great Greek philosophers were Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. We have nothing from Socrates. In fact, we only know about him through his famous student, Plato, and then from Plato's famous student, Aristotle. But we have in existence about 250 manuscripts of Plato's writings that we have been documented that are still around today. Now, in terms of time, there's about 1,400 years from when Plato wrote to the earliest, oldest manuscripts we have of what he wrote, 1,400 years. And by the way, you may say that's a long time. Well, it's considered to be a reasonable time difference to still consider Plato's work as having high integrity. But let's take another example. Let's take Sophocles, for instance. There are about 193 ancient manuscripts still surviving, and the time distance just happens to be, again, about 1,400 years from when Sophocles wrote to the time of the earliest, oldest manuscripts. Let's consider a third example. Let's take Aristophanes. In his case, there's only 10 ancient surviving manuscripts, and the time distance from when he wrote to the earliest, oldest ones of those 10 is about 1,200 years. Now, is your seatbelt buckled? Are you ready? Contrast those ancient examples with our New Testament. There are upwards of 30 thousand surviving ancient manuscripts, and the earliest are not separated by 1,400 years or even 1,200 years, but only by a few decades. Now, why is that important? Why am I telling you this? You, you're, some of you are going, I don't, I don't, I don't, I feel like I'm in a seminary. I, I don't want to learn these things in church. You need to know this. It'll stoke your confidence in the Bible because you will sometimes hear skeptics erroneously claim, look, the Bible is not reliable because the church just made a bunch of things up about Jesus that aren't true. Jesus never performed miracles, but the church made up a bunch of miracles about him, and so all these layers of embellishment took place. Now listen, that false argument depends on there being lots of time for that process of embellishing to occur. The the whole argument that legends accumulated around Jesus, again, requires a long period of time for those legends to have accumulated. And when it comes to the New Testament, that time simply isn't there. So what I'm saying to you is that the textual integrity of the New Testament is, hear me, far greater far greater than any other ancient writing. 
Now, to me, that's very impressive in and of itself. But is that enough to trust that the New Testament, that the Bible is reliable? Well, let's ask another question. How do I know that the original writers of Scripture were writing about real people, places, or events? Maybe they were just good novelists, you know? Maybe it's fiction. Maybe maybe the writers of Scripture, even though the textual integrity, as we've just seen, is, is amazing, maybe they just made the whole story up in the first place. I mean, the Gospels claim to be eyewitness testimony, like read Luke's Gospel, for instance. You'll see that he's writing for this guy named Theophilus, and he says, now, I've checked all this out carefully, O Theophilus. Please be aware, I, I, I'm the one who's been a part of witnessing this stuff. I've checked it out carefully. But how do we know the writers really were eyewitnesses? How do we know they knew what they were talking about? How do we know if this is legend or credible history? According to early tradition, none of the Gospels or Acts were written right in Jerusalem or right in the heart of where most of these things took place. For instance, Mark was written in Rome. Uh, you know, Luke was written in Antioch. John's gospel was written in Ephesus. Matthew's gospel was a little closer. It was written in Judea. So a person might rightly ask, wait a minute, why should I believe people writing about something that took place and they weren't even actually there when they wrote it. How do I know they know what they're talking about? Because, I mean, if you've just visited a place, you don't necessarily know it intimately. You have trouble getting the details right. In my research this week, I ran across something I had never seen before. An Israeli historian and lexicographer, you can look her up, her name is Tal Elan. You can find her on Wikipedia. You can see all the amazing research she's done. She did research on the names within ancient Judaism from about 330 B.C. to about 200 A.D. It is fascinating. Tal Elan, this eminent scholar, used archaeology, inscriptions, all the ancient references and documentation she could find. And here's what she was trying to do. She was basically trying to create a phone book of the real people who existed during that time. Some of you don't know what a phone book is. You'll have to get someone to explain that to you. But actual names of people who lived in Palestine at that time. It's called the Lexicon of Jewish Names, in antiquity. I tried to buy it this week, but it was 250 bucks, so I had to renege on that. But it is amazing. Now, here's the deal. It came out in 2002, and four years later, 2006, the eminent Cambridge scholar, Richard Balcom, took what Tally Lon had done, so impressive, and he said, I'm going to compare her research of the people that actually existed, and we know it, we've got proof of it, 
I'm going to compare that with what we find in the New Testament. And so go with me here. Go with me. This is the first time I ever was introduced to this, just this week. Taking male Jewish Palestinian names, Palestine is the Bible land where all, almost all of the Bible events occurred. Taking the list from the first century, here's the order of popularity of the top seven Jewish male names in Palestine. Number one, Simon. By the way, every generation has their list of popular names, right? It's changing all the time in our culture. And names that were popular 20, 30 years ago, you may not hear them much today, all right? By the way, I recently heard that Rex is really making a comeback, and I was pretty excited about that. It, Rex is one of the more popular boys' names right now for people who are just getting ready to be parents. Simon was number one in the first century in Palestine. Josephus, number two. Number three, Lazarus. Number four, Judas. I had no idea. Number five, John. Number six, this blew my mind. I didn't know that Jesus was such a common and popular name in the culture. And number seven is Ananias. Now, if you've read the New Testament, you're familiar with those names because they're commonly used in the New Testament. And guess what? You would expect them, wouldn't you, to be in the New Testament if, if the writers are writing about real people, real events, real places, and not just making things up. Now, compare that with the list of most popular Jewish male names at that time in Egypt. Egypt is not that far away from Palestine, but the seven most popular Jewish male names in Egypt are quite different. Here they are. Eliezer, Sabbatas, Joseph, Josephus, Papus, Ptolemaeus, and Samuel. Now, we're not real familiar with those names. Why? Because the New Testament writers were writing about real people, places, and events. They knew what they were talking about. That is impressive. If you've just read the New Testament, you don't see names like Papus and Ptolemaeus and Josephus or Sabbatus in there. Why? Because those were down in Egypt. And most of the New Testament events were happening in Palestine. I know this is a little tedious for some of you. I, I get that. But go with me just a couple minutes longer. I think you will be really impressed. They even knew what nuances to make on the names. Now, remember what the most popular name was? Simon, right? Simon, most popular name. Imagine a Jewish mom calling out the back door out into the neighborhood, Simon, oh, Simon, come home for supper. Well, every Simon within earshot would come running, right? Remember, it's the most popular male Jewish name at that time, in Palestine. So if you're really familiar with the culture, if you're, if you're not just making stuff up, if you really know the nuances of the culture, you would know when to distinguish certain names and add something to it that distinguishes it. And if you're talking about Simon, I mean, you would really need to distinguish it because there's Simons everywhere. 
Jesus had two disciples named Simon. One was Simon, son of Jonah. The other was Simon the Zealot. He had dinner with Simon the leper. Simon of Cyrene carried the cross. And Simon Peter, in the book of Acts, stayed with Simon the Tanner. There are lots of Simons in the Bible, but it makes sense, doesn't it, for there to be lots of Simons? Why? Because Simon is the most popular male Jewish name in Palestine at the time. And what's even more amazing is that the gospel writers know when to do this and when not to. We can see this in the list of names. For instance, look on the screen at Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 2. This is a list. It says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. So let's check them out and see if they knew when to distinguish and when to not. Simon, he's number one on the list, and he's called Peter to distinguish him, and his brother is Andrew. In other words, you know which Simon you're talking about because they're all over the place. James, he's number 11 on the most popular list of names, and that's a quite high-ranking name, so he's designated as the son of Zebedee, so you know which James you've got. John, he's number five on the most popular list, and he's James' brother. Philip, whoo, he's only 61 on the list of most popular names, so no distinguishing is needed. He's just plain old Philip. How would the writers know to do that if they weren't intimately familiar with this culture? Bartholomew, he's number 50 on the list of ranking names, and again, no qualifier is given because you don't need to. Bartholomew is a rather unusual name. Thomas, my goodness, Thomas doesn't even make the top 100 of most popular names. So guess what? He's just plain old Thomas, no need to say anything else. Matthew, ah, now we've got a popular name again. Matthew's number nine on the high-ranking list. And so he's distinguished as, which Matthew are we talking? Matthew the tax collector. Oh, I know that guy. Yeah, that's the one you're talking about. Then James, number 11 on the most popular list. He's son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus is only number 39 on the list of most popular names. So no qualifier is needed and no qualifier is given. Simon again, number one on the list. So he's Simon the Zealot, so you know who you're talking about. And finally, Judas, another very popular name on our list, and he's designated as Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. You say, Pastor, what is the point of this? This points powerfully to the conclusion that the biblical writers knew this culture intimately. They knew what they were talking about, and they were giving eyewitness testimony. I find that eminently impressive. But I want to ask one final question today as we move toward wrapping up. Okay, so it's a remarkable book. The textual integrity is off the charts, greater than any ancient document. We have amazing internal evidence by the way they nuanced the names that they knew the culture intimately and they were talking about real people, places, and events. But is it accurate? If all those other things are true, it still doesn't prove that the Bible is accurate. How do we know it's accurate? 
How do we know that what they saw with their own eyes, what they experienced, they wrote it down accurately in the Bible? It's interesting that Peter later writes, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. Peter's saying, look, even if you don't believe my eyewitness account, even though I'm willing to die for it, you need to look at the prophets. And then he later goes on to say, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. All throughout the Bible, the writers of the Bible claim to have been inspired by God. They claim that what they wrote down didn't come just out of their own minds, although God did use their personalities. They claim that it was inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed, and that's the consistent claim of the writers of scripture. To me, one of the most amazing things that points this out is the accuracy of the Bible. Even though it never claims to be a book of botany or astronomy or hydrology, even though it's over 2,000 years old, when it speaks to those subjects, it is accurate and true. But think about how amazing the Bible is in its fulfilled prophecies. I think you'll agree with me, it's pretty hard to predict details about the future. Even our wonderful meteorologists who try to help us know what's coming in the weather have trouble predicting the future. I love my weather app on my phone. I use it constantly, probably several times a day. (laughs) But have you ever tried to make plans based on a seven-day forecast? Don't do it. Don't do it. It's probably not going to turn out exactly the way they are predicting it is. Something's going to happen faster. Something's going to happen slower. Something's going to change. Nobody can predict the future. But the Bible, get this, the Bible has been 100% accurate in its predictions. The Old Testament prophets, there are over 300 predictions in the Old Testament about the Messiah. Things like where he would be born, Bethlehem. Things like he would be called a Nazarene, that he would be born of a virgin. Uh, It was predicted that he would be betrayed by a friend and sold for 30 pieces of silver, that he would be executed among thieves, that he would gamble for his robe. The list goes on and on. He would be buried in a borrowed tomb. He was raised from the dead. Now, how do you account for that? In Psalm 22 alone, an amazing psalm, there are over 30 predictions in there about crucifixion. When that psalm was written, crucifixion had not even been invented yet by the Persians. The Persians, many people say the Romans invented crucifixion. They did not. The Persians invented crucifixion. The Romans simply perfected it and made an art out of it, if you will. That Psalm 22, which describes crucifixion in intricate detail, 
was written well before crucifixion was ever invented. And yet, look at some of the detail that it gives. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. By the way, all these things were common. I could explain to you. People would often mock the people on the cross. They would stare at them and gloat over them. You could count all their bones as the victim was stretched out on the cross. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing, which if you've read the New Testament, you know that's exactly what the soldiers did. How do you explain that? How do you explain these amazing predictions about the Messiah unless the Bible is divinely inspired? One mathematician took a crack at it. He said the chances, the chances mathematically of all those predictions coming true in just one person is about one in 10 to the 157th power. Now, skeptics might say, ah, yeah, those look impressive. But you know what? I'll tell you what happened. The church pulled a fast one. The followers of Jesus, they tricked everybody. They put all of those things in the Bible after the fact. After Jesus came back, they put that in there. After he was crucified, they went back and planted stuff like that so that people would think it was miraculous and amazing. And you know what? That was kind of hard to refute for a while because there were no manuscripts existing of the Old Testament where all those predictions are. There were no manuscripts that predated Jesus for a while. But in the late 1940s, a little shepherd boy in the Qumran community near the Dead Sea lost a sheep. And as he was searching for his sheep, he discovered a cave he had never seen before and his community didn't know about. And he thought his sheep might have gone in there, so he threw a rock in there, and he heard pottery smashing. And the investigation that followed led to the discovery of a whole library that the leaders of the Qumran community, prior to Christ being born, they were a very ascetic community who lived there, rather secluded. They had stored away all of these Old Testament documents, as well as other documents that guided their community life, that was their library. That was their warehouse. They put them away in that cave to keep them out of the hands of enemies during the times of war. And they discovered in those Dead Sea Scrolls the oldest manuscripts ever discovered. And through carbon-14 dating, even the most skeptical scholars agree that those documents dated some of them to at least 200 years before Jesus came into the world. And as they unraveled those brittle manuscripts, they discovered that those predictions were all still there. He will be born in Bethlehem. He will be called a Nazarene. He will be born of a virgin. And on and on they go. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of humans. But people moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Folks, I want to tell you today, wherever you are on your journey of faith, I have spent now decades, and I mean literally decades, making it my business to study this Bible inside and out. 
I've studied its history, its transmission, where it came from, how it was preserved through the years. And I wanna tell you, you can have a high, high level of confidence that there is no other book like the Bible. It contains the very mind of God. But I wonder today, is it as you've been listening and reflecting on what I've been saying, I wonder if maybe God has spoken to your heart. And I wonder if some of you would be ready to say, you know what? I need to take this a step further. I believe there may be some listening online or listening at one of our locations who are ready to pray the agnostics prayer. You know what the agnostics prayer is? I love this prayer. The agnostics prayer basically says, look, God, if you're really there, would you reveal yourself to me? However you see fit, just let me know that you're really there and that you are real. Some of you may want to pray that prayer today. But there are others of you who may want to go a step further and actually invite Jesus into your life to be your Savior, your Lord. If that's you, I'm going to give you a chance right now to do that. I'm going to pray a a simple prayer. It's a prayer that we've seen hundreds, and I mean literally hundreds of people pray through the years, and God has met them right where they are, forgiven their sins, and come in and begun to change their lives. I want to urge you to pray that prayer with me, just silently. You don't have to say it out loud, but just right where you are. Could we bow our heads together, and if you're ready to pray that prayer This could be the moment where God enters your life in a brand new way and begins to transform you from the inside out. Pray this prayer with me, just phrase by phrase. Oh God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven. Please forgive all of my sins. Adopt me into your family. Begin to change me by your spirit from the inside out. Thank you for calling me to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, I want to pray for all of those who prayed that prayer today that you would seal them, keep them, secure them in you that this would be the start of a long, long journey of obedience and transformation. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.